Hello and welcome to the Crying Burns Calories podcast. I'm your host, Katie Saltzman, personal trainer, nutrition coach, entrepreneur, creator, and expert in teaching women how to take back control of their health, their mindset, and their happiness. Most of you know me as a nutrition coach, but this podcast and this platform is going to be so much more. This is a place where I want to be able to talk about it all. Yes, of course, health and fitness, but also relationships, social media, adulting, hormones, just life. I want this podcast to cover all the ups and downs, and I want you to know that you're not alone. Ultimately, I'm here to give you the confidence to break through what's holding you back, to embrace who you fully are and show up authentically in life. Because life is messy. It's not perfect and it's not meant to be. So grab your wine, a drink, or if you're like me, that chocolate or that ice cream, because it's time to take our stories and the things we go through and make them our superpower. It's time to laugh, cry, learn, and understand that we are all in this together. So let's dive in. All right, I am here with my friend, Katie. She is a limited licensed psychologist. She specializes in the treatment of eating disorders. Katie and I actually met because she was a client of mine. I got the pleasure to work with Katie to get to know her. Um, She became a friend of mine and her work and her mission in life is to enhance the quality of each person's life that she comes in contact with. And I think her and I just connected on this different level. And I knew as soon as I said I was doing a podcast, as soon as I like put it out in the universe, I told Katie that I wanted her on it. Um, because I just knew that she would have so much to offer you. So Katie, thank you so much for being here. Introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your story. Yay, I'm so excited to be here. Um, let's see. I mean, my story, I feel like I feel like I've got to rewind a little bit. So probably everybody brew a cup of coffee, have some tea. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I'm gonna take it back to probably probably childhood was, is where my story really started. Um, I think psychology has always been a huge part of my own life because it's been a huge part of my own personal experience. So I would say probably the biggest thing with me even coming to where I'm at today and wanting to be a therapist was just based on what I went through. So as a child, like being five years old and having OCD and not really knowing what that was, And I think funny enough, it was like, um, like MTV true life. If you remember that show, (laughs) I used to, I loved that show. Yes. I remember being like probably eight or nine watching and being like, oh my goodness, it was about people with OCD. And I'm like, I have that. (laughs) And I (laughs) MTV true life diagnosed you. Yes. I was like, okay, this is a thing. I just thought everyone thought like this. Um, And as I went into high school, I started dealing with, um, I I had my own eating disorder and um, a lot of anxiety that came with that. And through everything, I feel like in college, I kind of had this moment where um, I ended up getting very sick. And I realized like, I just can't live the rest of my life in this way. It was kind of everything I knew from childhood to maybe 19 or age 20, 
And that's when I really started diving into psychology and into health. That's when I got my um, certification as a holistic health coach. And just because I wanted to heal myself. And I think that's what makes me so passionate about this. Yeah. I think it's a very common thing in like the coaching industry or even where you are, like the psychology industry to want to have people, um, to want to help people that have a similar story to you. Like for me, I, I feel like I attract clients that are more like go-getters type A, like very like get shit done kind of people, but they have trouble putting themselves first. Like I find that and for you, you're really passionate about helping people with eating disorders because that was your history. That's what you've been through. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think me and you talked a lot throughout my own coaching with you about that kind of people pleasing and yes. not putting ourselves first. And like, definitely, um, I think me and you both have that tendency to be like the push ourselves a yeah, little bit yeah. too much sometimes. And it's always important to remember to reel it back a little bit. So that is, I mean, totally. I've noticed that in my own clients, they are kind of you know, seeking that perfection within themselves and forgetting, you know, all the beauty around the imperfection. Yeah. So you work mainly with clients with eating disorders. Yes. Correct. Yes. So do you feel like there has been this like massive increase in eating? I mean, I'm sure you know the numbers behind it way more than I do, but I'm guessing there's been this like increase in eating disorders throughout the years. Absolutely. At least where we are seeing them being treated. So I think for a long time, eating disorders were kind of kept in the dark. And especially with the rise in diet culture, you know, eating disorder behavior, whether it was a full-blown eating disorder or not, that disordered view of food and body image is so normalized across society right now that most of us do have some sort of distorted body image or disordered eating. Yes. Um, And definitely it has just become very normal and normalized. So I think just recently, especially during the pandemic, um, a lot of people have been really coming face to face with the fact that this is a real issue. This isn't normal. Yeah. I feel like the pandemic allowed us to sit with things more and understand that, like understand our day-to-day behaviors. You know, where before, like a lot of times you go through these days on autopilot without recognizing things. And then all of a sudden you're forced to slow down. And, and not only that, but you slow down and you don't have the tasks to disassociate maybe what's going on in your head or in your life with filling it with other things. You're like, oh, I I really have to deal with, because I, I, I don't know. Do you feel like that mental health has talked about more since the pandemic? Absolutely. I think uh, just even with the work that I do with my clients, I, most of them have brought up the pandemic as being kind of this like shift within their own mindset where they realized, okay, I I can't actually run from this because I don't have any distractions. Like maybe I have work at home or maybe I'm going to school through zoom, but for the most part, everyone was by themselves and having that kind of introspective moment, which I think I was lucky enough to go through when there was not a pandemic, but it was through me getting sick, right? Kind of having that isolation, we actually come face to face with what is actually going on inside of our heads. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Why, why do you think it's such, 
it's um, normal to like not talk about mental health. Stigma, I think. Yeah, there's, um, and this is something that I will be very, very transparent with my own clients when, you know, we're doing work together is I know that feeling of, you know, a lot of my clients have been in treatment centers and I'm like, I get it because I've also been in treatment centers and I understand what it feels like to just be looked at as, um, you know, there's kind of this idea in the mental health community that if you need to go to the hospital or if you need higher levels of care that you are, you know, quote unquote crazy. Yeah. That's where you go if you really can't handle anything. And it's just not true at all. So I think the more we talk about it and we see people just like you and me that are getting help, the, the less stigma there is around it. It's like way more acceptable to go into a hospital or a treatment center for something like a physical ailment, like, hey, I had a heart attack or I have this going on. I have this pain. I broke this bone. That's normal. But saying I'm not well, like I'm mentally not well, is like, oh, that person's crazy. That's like, that's like frowned upon. You know, it's sort of like push it down, deal with it yourself. It's not okay. Right. It is viewed as being weak by a lot of people, you know, oh, well, you just weren't able to, you know, think positive or just grab yourself and, and oh. go. Oh, yeah. that, that's the, I'm sorry, but that advice is like a slap in the face. And it's, it's, it's everywhere on social media now, this like idea of thinking positive. And while that's beautiful, in order to think positive, like one, the idea of thinking positive all the time isn't realistic, but you have to be able to be in a healthy enough mental state and to be able to sort of shift and evolve into a new version of you. And like, you need tactical things. Like think positive is like, oh, thanks. Like thumbs up, you know? Exactly. Yeah, there's um, one of the areas that I work with is it's called DBT. So dialectical behavior therapy and big fancy word. But basically what it means is that there's like two opposing truths that can be they can be true at the same time. So sometimes we think like, okay, either my life is amazing or it completely sucks. And it's like, both can actually be happening at the same time. We can be extremely sad and grieving and also be thankful and blessed and, you know, enjoy moments of happiness. We, we kind of forget that we are able to feel more than one thing at a time. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting concept. So where do you feel like people, like, if you feel like you're struggling with mental health, but are scared to talk about it, like, what would, what do you suggest to your clients? Like, what are good steps to be able to be like, Hey, I think I am struggling with this. Yeah, that is a great question because I think it kind of depends for each person, especially if we take into like some of the maybe cultural aspects or, you know, your background, it may be more acceptable to talk about or a little bit scarier to open up about. Um, But really identifying first, if there's anyone in your life that can be a support to you, because I think when you are really down, it's so hard to number one, believe that you deserve the help. And number two, it's, you don't even have the energy, right? So having that support system of like, hey, you know, we love you. We're going to rally behind you. I think you need help. And if we don't have that, there's so many great resources through a simple Google search, you know, of any treatment areas that are in your area, 
or phone numbers that you can call. Like there's so many resources right now. And really, as long as you have a phone or internet connection, you can get to them. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny that you say that, like reach out to people and use your resources. Cause I was having this conversation with my business coach where I'm feeling like, I mean, you know, that I'm going through a lot right now in my life and I feel this need to want to be able to fix it all on my own and then also do all the things in life and be successful that way. And like, for me, she's like, your only job right now is to rally the troops. She's like, your only job right now is to reach out to people in your life that support you and ask for that support and and have them value and support you through that. Because until you get sound there, you're not going to be able to grow in other areas of your life. But I think we're scared to be able to say like, I'm struggling, you know, I'm struggling with all of this stuff. And like, I feel like the more we need to talk about it more because it's so, so many people are struggling and it's normal, but we see these perfect social media feeds with everybody smiling and, and, you know, these perfect lives. And we think like, why don't I have that? Like, that's not me. I'm not like that. And we, 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 I think we hesitate to reach out to people. Absolutely. And there's just like one of the things I've noticed is that with this wealth of information that we have just at our fingertips, it's like, we're almost just completely overwhelmed with all these different ideas of how to help ourselves. That sometimes we just need that human connection of like the people that know us best being like, Hey, even just one step in the right direction, you're still getting to a better place. Right. And I think I remember, um, I was listening to one of your podcasts and you talked about like how it can be really hard to find the right fit with a therapist. So having that encouragement. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's it's like dating. (laughs) It is like dating. I I would be like sitting on, because I did all over Zoom. Like when I started therapy was like in like the pandemic and I was like, felt like I was staring at a blank screen where they were just like, and tell me this and tell, which is great, but, but you now my therapist is like my friend like I get on zoom with her and she gets me and like I you know when you find someone that you connect with but it is like dating why is it like that it is just wild like I think we have this idea of with a doctor it's a lot easier to just kind of go in and be like hey these are my symptoms I need you to prescribe me something let's move on but when you are diving into trauma or into like the most personal details of your entire life, maybe things you've never told anyone before, you've got to feel safe with that person. And sometimes we find the right fit. And other times, just like with friends or with, you know, coworkers, like we just aren't vibing with that person. Yeah. That's why seriously date your therapist, like go to a few sessions and then be like, ah, let me see if I want to give them a chance or not. (laughs) That is the best advice. And I'm actually so grateful mine was over Zoom because like in person, I feel like it would have been awkward with so many of them. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like there's only like over Zoom, you can at least be like, all right, this isn't working out. But in person, I feel like it'd be harder. But that is such good advice to date your therapist. You know, because I can't tell you how many people I've heard that said, oh, I went to therapy once and hated it. But it's like, that's not the point to go once. The point is to find someone that you connect with where you can help and grow and build a foundation, you know? Just like if people came to me with coaching and they wanted one session, that wouldn't do anything for them. Same with, you know, people that come to you for eating disorders. It's like, yeah, one session might get a little bit out in the open, but like, that's not going to do anything to heal the root cause of what's going on. 
Right. Yeah. And I can't remember the exact number um, of sessions or months that, that you had a commitment for, but I remember really liking, was it three months commitment? Yeah, I have a three month commitment. Yes. Yes. And I just remember thinking that that is so great because truly sometimes we're looking for that quick fix and that just does not happen even in the first month. Like yeah. we're still trying to dive into everything and kind of troubleshoot for, I mean, especially when we're dealing with trauma that gets stored in your body, like absolutely some months. It takes months. Like I feel like your commitment would be way longer than mine, but the really the first, like I call the first four to six weeks, a calibration period. We're figuring out what's going on in your body mentally, physically, and emotionally. Cause we know that weight loss is not just a numbers thing. You know, there's going to be tons of ups and downs and trust me, two weeks in, you're going to hit a low and you're going to want to quit. And like, that's even with, even with therapy, I'm sure you end sessions where it's like, you know, you've just opened up so much trauma and they have to deal with that. And maybe it doesn't feel good, you know, right. but it's, it's that next time where you can sort of build and grow on that to come back to. Absolutely. And there, there's kind of those periods where we can't see any growth because we are kind of like recalibrating what our baseline is. So maybe we are, you know, two months, three months into therapy. And then all of a sudden we're like, I feel like I'm hitting a wall. I'm not getting better. This is never going to go away. Yeah. And we just hold on a little bit. And that's when those breakthroughs come through. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, I can't tell you how many therapy sessions I ended like Kim Kardashian, ugly crying. And I was like, this sucks. But then all of a sudden the next day I was like, oh, I feel a little bit better. <laughs> feel a little yeah. bit happier, you know, and you, you sort of build on that, but not every, like, I think we have the idea of hiring a therapist or a coach. And we think the work is going to be done for us. Like it's, it's a next step and it's boom, we got it. But like, it's, it's continuing the work. It's knowing that you have to dive deep and you have to really go inside to be able to fix what's going on. Cause it's not just about right now where you have the coach. It's about the future, you know, for, for your goal when working with clients with eating disorders is for them to never have that eating disorder again, you know, not just for the months working with you. Absolutely. And that was, one of the biggest things that working with you was so helpful, like just wow. reminding myself of that. Like, this is something that, that you were setting your clients up for life, you know, and it's not just, Hey, we're going to work together, you know, forever. Yeah. It's like, no, oh, we're setting that, those lifestyle habits and those mindset shifts where you are going to be able to go out and do this on your own someday. Yeah. And you may need little tune-ups. Like I always tell my clients, Hey, if you're doing amazing and in two months life happens and you're like, Hey, I feel like I'm really struggling to remember what we talked about. We come back, we do a few sessions and then we reassess because again, there's nothing wrong with needing help at different points in our lives. Absolutely. I love the word, I love the word tune-up. Um, I actually really appreciated. I don't know if I ever told you this, but I appreciated having Katie as a client because she, I think I've grown and evolved in a coach where when I first started, it was very numbers based, macros based. And now I'm very much want to teach awareness with numbers and macros, but then also understand that that's not a lifestyle. And because of your background, because of your history, you really, and you were so open about it that you sort of allowed me to find this like nice balance where I was able to be like, okay, we need more tactical things like outside of numbers, you know? And I, I've, I want to dive in a little bit more to eating disorders and disordered eating. 
And I think this is something that hits home for me because I didn't realize that I had disordered eating. I mean, when I was going through all of these diets, the 1200 calories, obsessing over my body, hitting my lowest weight on the scale and still hating my body. Um, but then also things like binging. Like, I mean, I was a huge binge eater because I would skip and I would eat such little calories that it would come and hit me. Um, so I, I mean, I struggled with that, but to me, eating disorders was like bulimia and anorexia and not understanding that what I had was serious disordered eating. So walk me through the difference between eating disorders and disordered eating. So truly, like I, like I said, most of us probably have some of that disordered eating, unless we've done a whole lot of work around it. Um, just a lot of inner work. (laughs) Yes. We have so many messages coming in. So most of us do have some of those, um, like rules around food where we don't even recognize that we have them, but food is causing us stress. Our body image is causing us stress. We constantly feel like we're not doing enough. Where it crosses the line into being a full-blown eating disorder would be really just the severity of it. So honestly, you could have the exact same symptoms. Um, So having that kind of preoccupation with food, feeling like you're out of control around food or you need to compensate for food when it gets to be an eating disorder is just when your life kind of crumbles around everything except for that. Your life view becomes that like with my clients, I kind of tell them, you know, an eating disorder is it takes our world and it shrinks it to being teensy tiny. That's all we focus on. Yeah. We lose friends. A lot of my clients have lost, you know, work due to the, the eating disorder. So it's really when that severity starts to get amped up. So it's when people say like, um, like a functioning alcoholic, which we're very familiar with <laughs> when, when people like a functioning alcoholic, it's like a functioning eating disorder. And it crosses the line to where it's like, your life is now this, you know, yeah. instead of functioning, like you, you have an eating disorder or you are like an alcoholic where you can't really function much around that. You can't relax. That's your life. And that is one of the hardest parts, I think, with identifying even just, you know, for the individual who has an eating disorder is because these people that have these disorders tend to be very high achieving individuals. So they may be somehow holding things together, even though their life and their health is completely falling apart. So really, um, I mean, at the base of it, if you open up uh, the DSM-5 and you kind of look through the different eating disorders, all you really need are like five symptoms to really meet that criteria. Yeah. Probably a lot of us walking around with one that we just don't know. What do you think are the most common behaviors of eating disorders? You mentioned um, kind of that like restrict and binge cycle. Mm -hmm. That is so common. Um, You know, we try so hard to control what we're eating. We think we're kind of taught, I think that, you know, if a diet doesn't work, it's our fault. So if we just try harder next time, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. So we try harder, we restrict harder, we work out more. And then inevitably the body does what the body is supposed to do. And it makes up for that. So we start binge eating and that's where other behaviors come into play. So for some people, with binge eating disorder, they binge and they feel like they cannot stop. People with bulimia, they binge and then they compensate. 
right? Even people with anorexia do also struggle with binge eating. So that is actually common across pretty much every eating disorder that um, focuses around body image. Yeah. I, I even think people that are say, Hey, I emotionally eat or I emotionally binge eat a lot of times. Like if, if I dive deep into my clients, well, what is that emotion you're feeling? Well, it's a feeling of, I feel like I failed. I'm not happy with my body. It's self-doubt, it's self-image, it's self-worth. And it's that emotion that leads to the binge eating. So really like this is all tied back around to how we feel about ourselves and wanting to control our body and our body image. And I really, I mean, I, I think this is directly related to diet culture and the rise of diet culture. I mean, obviously eating disorders existed before that, but would you agree that like diet culture has just really like lit this like flame and like, like poured gasoline on a fire? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. There is just such an increase in not only the severity of eating disorders, but then also, I mean, even the age that people are starting to exhibit these like really, you know, severe symptoms has gotten drastically younger and younger to sometimes we see eight-year-olds that are really, really struggling with, you know, eating disorders that we would not see that severity until much later in life. Yeah. Because it's, it's brought to them at a younger age now with cell phones, with social media, with everything it's, it's at, I can't imagine. I mean, I came from the generation of like slim fast and the cabbage soup diet. And like, like the, those diets are based around disordered eating, like eat cabbage soup for a week. And then on day three, you can add in bananas. And then day four, you can add in a little bit of dairy. It's like how fucked up that is. I can't even wrap my head around. But ooh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the F word, but oh well. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this uh my mine is marked in a category where I'm I'm not swearing, but that's okay. We're gonna say we're gonna roll with it. Here we go. But even like slim fast, drink two slim fast shakes a day. Those are 190 calories each or something crazy like that. And then have one meal. So you're literally functioning off of eight to nine hundred calories a day, which is an, an eating disorder. I mean, you're restricting your body of necessary, not only calories, but necessary nutrients and feeling amazing and having energy and sleeping well and all of these things. And then we're pairing that with excessive exercise. Oh, of course. Cause then you have to be doing both. Yeah. And I mean, I grew up in, in that realm with like Cosmo magazine and having like really super thin models. And you're always comparing that but it wasn't at my fingertips all the time. And even I developed a, you know, disordered eating because of it and a disordered body image, but I can't imagine what it would be like growing up now. I know. I know. It's actually really, really amazing how resilient some of these teenagers are because I mean, they, they leave school and everything is on Snapchat and Instagram and everything's constantly being kind of like in their face of, what you're supposed to look like. And even with the filters that go on, like what your face is supposed to look like. And it's so abnormal for us to have that constantly, constantly being thrown at us. When, when you're always looking at filtered images and when you're always using a filter and then like, like when I say filters, I'm not against filters that are going to give you a little tan or whatever. Like those, I don't think those are as bad as like, but 90% of the filters now will give you eyelashes, will change the shape of your nose, will make your lips bigger, will make your jawline more structured. They change the way you look. And then when you look, if that's what you're so used to looking at, when you look at actually who you are, you start to feel flawed. 
Right. And then it really is shrinking our idea of what is beautiful and these very specific features, which is just wild to me. I know it is, it is. And then you start to have all of these ideas of, I need to change myself because I don't look like this, you know? So you get, you get people not only wanting to change the way they look with obsessive exercise and with eating, but then you also get into a realm where like women are getting work done a lot younger. And like, obviously it's a personal decision. I'm not against that, but, and I'm okay with anybody what making whatever decision they want, but you want to be able to do it because you love yourself and because you're okay with that. Not because you want to change the way you look because you feel like you need to. Right. And that, you know, brings up too just along the mental health realm and sometimes goes into eating disorders is body dysmorphia. And so often the, the clients that are going to seek out these surgeries are actually dealing with body dysmorphia, which is where we just, we see things completely differently than anyone else would see them. So, you know, maybe we have a tiny little speck on our nose, but to us, it truly does look enormous. And so we go and we seek out these treatments, but it's actually not fixing mentally what is going on, which is a a disorder. Yeah, absolutely. So, so explain a little bit about body dysmorphia and what that is. So body dysmorphia, sometimes we think of that as being like, um, poor body image, but that's not actually true. Um, body dysmorphia can actually be more described kind of along like OCD lines. So we have these obsessions about things with our appearance and generally it's actually not our body size. Um, it can be little things about our face or different features that we have. And we become extremely obsessed with trying to control those things. So we have then those compulsions like body checking and we're always looking in the mirror or on our phones or we have to be seen at cer- certain angles or, you know, sadly, some people just stop going out in public because it is that, that debilitating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Always trying to cover up. Like it's, it creates another level of social anxiety. Yeah. Yes, Completely. I think for me too, I mean, it, it's so easy to snowball when I was dealing with my disordered eating and I wouldn't say I had body dysmorphia, but, um, I definitely had poor body image and poor self self-confidence, but I was so judgmental on myself that it, it made me more judgmental on other people as well. And it just spiraled into like, I was like, who am I? Like, this is not at all who I want to be the woman. I want to be the woman I want to represent. And I, I was lucky enough that I wasn't in a position where, I was bad enough into it where it became an eating disorder and I was able to sort of turn it around. And obviously now it's my job and my passion, but you know, for you, you came from an eating disorder and sort of dove into it a little bit deeper. What would you say like are, if, if somebody is struggling with this, like, what do you think are our best steps, like best practices, like just with getting help, but just things they can also do on their own? Yeah. So of course, gold standard would be if you can get into a therapist, but let's say you want to try, you know, a few things on your own. And today you want to start, I would say the biggest things that we kind of, um, focus on in treatment is the fact that it's never about the food. The food is simply a coping mechanism that we're using to kind of reflect what's going on inside. So we don't feel good enough about ourselves. So we are trying to manipulate something that is tangible on the outside 
to try and make ourselves feel better. So one of the things I love doing with my clients is, um, and this is kind of separate from that idea, but there's this concept of body neutrality. So on Instagram again. I love this. I just got chills. Dive into it. Good, good. <laughs> we see like the, the two extremes, right? So we see, okay, either I completely hate my body, everything's wrong, or I have to love my body and every single thing about it. We actually kind of tend to be somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. And if we can kind of cultivate this idea of being more neutral towards our body, we stop focusing on it so much. So when we are putting the focus on like, I have to love every single aspect of myself, we're still focusing on the fact that our appearance is, you know, this huge thing that matters so much. But if we focus on like, what is my body actually doing? What's the function of my body mm-hmm. that can really carry us through to where we're able to focus again on what is food actually giving to us? It's allowing us to be able to go out and, you know, do the things that really matter mm-hmm. versus putting all that focus and importance on our body and appearance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that I, I would say my biggest thing to relate to that would be, I used to try and fit into clothes that didn't fit me. You know, when I was at my, when I was 30 pounds heavier than I am now, I would want to fit into smaller clothes, these sizes that my friends were in. And I would wear these clothes and I was uncomfortable in them. And because of that, I would obsess over it more. I, you could, you, when, when clothes don't fit, you can physically feel the uncomfortable in somebody, you know, but I was trying to fit into clothes that didn't fit me. And because of that, I was uncomfortable in my body. I was obsessing over it more where now, like, if I'm like, look, we all have days where we feel bloated and like, or like maybe we ate a big dinner or like had drinks or whatever it might be. We enjoy life and we don't feel great the next day. Like now I'm like, I'll put on a pair of like biker shorts or leggings and like a flannel. And then I don't think about it or obsess about it. But if I were to try and put on a crop top and a pair of shorts, like I would be obsessing over my body. You know, it's, it's like taking the pressure away and saying like, how are you feeling in your body right now? What is going to serve you? And then going from there. Right. That's so true. We don't always body image is this thing that is constantly fluctuating and I know one of the things that comes up the most with my clients is like, well, how do I just get to the place where I feel good about what I look like? And I'm like, okay, well, you enjoy the days where you feel awesome about, you know, when you look in the mirror and you're like, wow, that's a great outfit. Or I love the way I did my makeup. And then there's other days where you aren't going to like it because body image fluctuates. It's almost like how we don't feel happy every single day, or we don't feel sad every day we, it changes depending on so many factors. So if we can just accept the fact that, you know, we're, we're going to live according to our own values, our deeper values, instead of focusing on our body so much, you know, like, Hey, I'm, I might be feeling bloated today, but that's not going to stop me from going to the pool with my friends because having fun and being social is a value of mine. Yes. I, uh, as you were talking, I pulled up this quote that I saw yesterday. I posted it in one of my groups, but it says, um, positive body image isn't believing your body looks good. It's knowing your body is good, regardless of how it looks. And I love that. Yeah. I I loved it too. And for me, I was like, holy shit, that's true. Because we think that we have to love ourselves all the time. This body positivity movement, this self-love movement makes us feel less actually. It makes us feel like we're doing something wrong when it's like, no, but that's not what loving yourself is. Like we're all going to have shitty days. 
we are, we're all going to have days where we're not feeling good about how we're looking or we're feeling more bloated or whatever it might be. But it's saying that like, I'm still good regardless of that. Right. Like I still deserve respect because I'm a living, breathing human being. And my guess is that most people listening to this podcast would agree that most human beings deserve respect just, you know, because we are alive and we're all in this together. So recognizing like you are human, just like anyone else. And it's, you know, weird that we hold ourselves to these standards that are so different for ourselves versus maybe everyone else. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I think that's like such good, um, such good advice. So what I'm curious, like if somebody, what are your favorite books on, on these topics? Cause you are such a book reader. And I wanted to ask you like, like give us like one or two books diving in that you love. Okay. So, Ooh, that is such a tough question. Let me think. So one of the things I really love, um, there are a few memoirs that are written by women that had eating disorders um, and are in treatment now. One of the most famous ones, which I would not recommend to anyone that is actively struggling with like a severe eating disorder, you might not be able to handle it yet. Um, but there's one, it's called Wasted. And I believe her name is Maria. And she is, she goes into like the depths of what is going on inside your head. And, and she experienced, which is common, um, a few different eating disorders throughout her life. And, you know, just really dives into what that experience is like. Yeah. Um, I would say those are kind of my favorite when it comes to body image, because we actually see like, this is the reality of if we keep going this way, what ends up happening. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, my favorite book that I use every single day with my clients would be the intuitive eating book. I have it sitting behind me. I have like, three I always see her posting this book, but it's, it's a big book. It's a, but it's a fantastic book. Yeah. I actually have it on audiobook. Because for me, that's more, that's more doable than like a paperback, but I think you're either an audiobook or paperback person. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And there's, um, there's so many good books about like diving into why we have the responses we have, like, uh, the body keeps the score all about trauma and how it gets stored in our bodies and how it comes out. <laughs> I've heard about that one. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't read that at all, but the body, I mean, you're like the third person that said that. So that's, that's more about like trauma trauma and like how that changes the way that our body actually physically starts reacting to all the little things in our lives and why if we feel stuck what might actually be going on wow i'm i'm curious that when i shared with katie before we started the call that i'm starting to dive into work a little bit with like a trauma coach and dive more into like energy work and healing work so i i definitely want to um pop that one on the agenda Yes. There's lots of good science. So maybe I'm just a little nerdy, but <laughs> it is just so cool to me, the things that they've discovered about how our mental health really affects our physical well-being as well. Just, oh my goodness, I'm so into it. So I feel like this is a topic for another episode, but I like, I'm somebody that's thrown out my lower back a lot in my life. Okay. And just this last time I, so I've connected with all of these girls in this mastermind that I've talked about, and you've seen it on my Instagram. They're a lot more like woo woo than I am like feminine energy, all of this stuff. 
And like two or three of them were like, do you know that your lower back is actually tied directly to like emotional health? Like, and, and it's crazy because the times that I throw out my lower back are more times that I'm going through something emotional or something traumatic that has happened where it's like, I physically can't get out of bed for a week or two, but then I'm starting to like read all this stuff about it. And it's like, well, is it more physical or is it actually emotional? You know? Wow. That is, that's wild to me. And I, I mean, not that I love that you threw out your back so many times, but I love like when we make those connections between, you know, cause at the end of the day, I mean, there is research to start supporting that. Yeah. We want to be like, no, I don't believe in that. That's a little bit too much. Like, even if we're still taking that time when we're laying in bed or when we're in pain to kind of reflect back on emotionally what's going on, yes. it's still serving us. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree with that more. Okay. So you are on the crying burns calories podcast. So I'm going to ask you three questions about crying. So, so, so everybody can get to know you a little bit more. So we're going to end with this. Um, number one question is what is most likely to make you cry? <laughs> Anything with animals I just I lose it Sarah McLaughlin comes on and you're just done for here is the remote I have to change it (laughs) I love that okay what movie is most likely to make you cry movie or show okay this is going to be mm, that's a hard one the first one that comes to mind is like the most classic uh you know the notebook everyone says the notebook in our stars that one something about that I was in the movie theater and it was like the credits were coming on and no one else was like crying around me and I went to like laugh at how much I was crying but instead it came out as like a giant sob and everyone (laughs) turns around and stares at me I was like I I can't come to a sad movie ever again (laughs) I can't contain myself you know what I'm having a moment yeah (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. And last question is if you're crying, what food are you most likely to go for? Ooh, let's say some sort of ice cream. I'm going to say moose tracks or mint chocolate chip ice cream. Good choices. I would say moose tracks or cookie dough. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Cookie dough with like hot fudge. Yes. (laughs) Go past it. I know Katie has a sweet tooth because her and I work together and we both, we both had one. So we got to work through that a little bit. So love my sweets yes me too amazing well katie tell everybody like where they can find you at like like instagram or as far as like your work like where can they contact you at yeah so as long as you are in michigan i am actually accepting a few more spots for clients Um, so i also do work with depression anxiety ptsd all those all those other diagnoses that sometimes go hand in hand Um, So I work at a place called My Body in Birmingham, Michigan. Um, And you can also find me on Instagram. Um, My handle is therapy for the resilient. All of her information will be um, in the show notes below. But Katie, thank you so much for being on. Thank you. This was so much fun. I know. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you like this podcast, leave me a review, and share it with any women in your life that you think need to hear it. If you don't already follow me, go over to Instagram, search Conditioned by Katie. Make sure you follow me. You're part of this community. If you're interested in working with me, look, I have so many different ways you can work with me, from one-on-one coaching to small group to master classes that I host and everything in between. The best way you can find out 
what's going on in the Conditioned by Katie world is to either follow me on Instagram or sign up for my newsletter on my website. That's going to give you all the updated info and a lot of other fun things every single week. But look, I'm just so happy you're here. I'm happy you're part of this community. Keep showing up, keep growing with me, and keep being you.